Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I'm excited today to have uh, another really, really cool guest uh, on the CSA show, uh, Justin Searle. Uh, I don't always know people uh, as well as I uh, think I'd like to say I know Justin. I know a lot about him. and I know he's a super, <laughs> super fascinating individual, uh, well beyond just the cybersecurity realm, uh, but has been doing a lot in cybersecurity as well. Welcome to the show, uh, Justin. Uh, okay, so Justin is, uh, is is neck deep in cybersecurity for control systems, and we will we will get to that and see where his journey led to that. But he is uh, a well-rounded person. He's He's a father. He is a he's a researcher. He's a security practitioner. He's an open source advocate. He's an instructor. He's a teacher. Very well known for doing that. Uh, an author. He is near and dear to my heart. He's also a scuba diver. Uh, but he's also got some really really cool uh, hobbies. He's a falconer. Um, he is a pilot. He's a rock climber. Lives in a great part of the world to do that. And uh, is an all around international globetrotter. You don't know what city you're going to find Justin in next. And so <laughs> this should be uh, should prove to be an interesting conversation. I have no doubt. All right. Well, Justin, uh, as I have said, I think on every single show, I uh, I believe that uh, you know we uh, modern day superheroes, cybersecurity people are in that category, and every superhero has a backstory. So uh, where did uh, where did Justin start? Where did he come from? Oh boy, born and raised in Utah. Um, and have lived here most of my life. Yeah, still there today. Hence the rock I'm climbing. Still, I'm still here today. <laughs> yeah. If, if one is going to be an outdoor enthusiast, that's not a bad place to live. It is It is not bad. My only complaint is that uh, we have snow here, and I think snow uh, makes for better vacations than uh, a daily experience. So uh, in the next year or two, we're probably moving southern Utah to get out of the snow. Yeah, well, I would, I'm in that group. I've said I like to visit snow or visit winter. I don't want to live in it anymore. And I've moved steadily more, more south as, the, uh, as time comes. And I'm not done moving south. <laughs> oh, well, we finally found a neighborhood that has a uh, private airstrip in it so we could uh, fly our helicopter in and out. So That's perfect. And we're going to get to that. I mean, that is <laughs> just, uh, just dropping into conversation. Uh, the uh, yeah. We're definitely going to get to that. That uh, that is not something most of us can uh, drop into any conversation. So so uh, going back to your pre-helicopter days, growing up, what's sort of the story there? You know, I always ask people what their first job is. Any you know any kind of job. There's lawn mowing businesses. There's you know all these. Things. Oh yeah. Oh so so my my first job that was not working for my family's uh, auto body shop. So the first job working for somebody else was uh, dressing up as a ninja turtle at the age of 14, dancing on the street corner to get people to actually come in, which was paying. Oh boy, this was back in like 1990, 91, like $25 an hour. So it was it was Whoa. like an amazing job for a 14 year old. Oh my gosh, yeah. I have a, a young child in my family that loves Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so I may have to ask you to uh, reenact, reenact that. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> so in those formative years, let's say you know, up, up through high school, any exposure to technology yet? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, in high school, I was actually, well, really in elementary, I started getting into uh, basic programming and uh, like like Snake right? The old snake programming, uh, the game that was elementary and was fascinated through middle school and high school. I started taking computer science classes and uh, electronics classes. Uh, basically, had earned almost my associate's degree in electronics engineering uh, in high school um, just by running through them and kind of exhausted the computer science classes as well and went on to college to focus on those same two areas. Yeah, you went. You got a computer science and uh, also electrical engineering. I think was your correct. Degree. So yeah, my bachelor's degree ended up being a a bachelor's in technology education with a minor in computer science and a minor in uh, electrical engineering. Yeah, so you've got you've got sort of interest in technology runs from runs from right, right away. 
Uh, yeah, well, and there was no there was no cybersecurity options back then, right? Yeah. And so uh, that's that's kind of where I, I came to cybersecurity was kind of at the uh, the center point of all that. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. And I think it's always uh, also interesting. You you did go and do some advanced education fairly soon after doing undergraduate work. Yeah, I did. I ended up getting my master's degree in international business and in information systems. I think it was ended up maybe two years after I finished my bachelor's system. And I did an accelerated course because of kind of a lapse in work at the time. I had gotten laid off and was looking for solutions. So I started doing consulting on my on the side and just headlong straight into an accelerated course to do a master's in in nine months, which was probably one of the hardest things I've done, other than maybe wow. NIST standards. <laughs> I might be missing missing uh, you know chronological nature here. So you got laid off from being a mutant ninja turtle and went and got No, an no, no, no. This was after college. <laughs> Nobody fires a Ninja Turtle, man. <laughs> no, not, not, they, don't, they don't want the retribution. So, okay. Yeah, so no, I was, I was uh, right after graduation, I, my original plan was to start teaching in a high school while I worked on my master's degree and then move to university and teach in a university. And that was kind of always my, my level set for my, my career. After, after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I went into corporate training instead of, you know, traditional high schools primarily because the salaries were a couple thousand dollars higher and the growth potential was was much faster which literally within one year i had actually doubled my salary by just doing internal steps and getting certifications and starting teaching those certifications like like uh, cisco networking certifications yeah at the time we uh, i was i was working for a company called new horizons and they ended up uh, losing one of their biggest contracts which was quest communications and uh, when that all fell to piece they ended up laying me off because that's the primary client i was consulting with and, and servicing when i got laid off and when Quest had fired them, Quest had actually approached me afterwards and asked me if I wanted to uh, to do teaching for them because they were happy with what I was doing. And and I did. And that's kind of where I started doing consulting on the side and working on my master's degree to continue that that progression and ended up becoming a professor for a couple of years and deciding that that uh, wasn't for me either, that I, I liked being a practitioner, but I also liked teaching at the same time. So I, I had to kind of finagle my career where I could do both, which I've somehow succeeded yeah i did not know that about your your early uh you know the the education part of your your, your um you know the education part of your education but it makes yeah. sense i've seen you uh, you know teach classes and i know that that's something you're very good at and so that interest in teaching people instructing the people where you chose to apply it might have changed but the desire there yeah. was so education education major it was kind of a little bit of a mixture of everything um yeah. i love learning and i sometimes have a hard time throttling what i'm focusing on <laughs> You know, I think one of the goals, you know, of the of these this series of interviews is to find things that people could emulate or or identify mm -hmm. with. You, you sort of mentioned early on grabbing some certifications as part of this process of building your credibility, Correct. building your story. You know, talk a little bit about that because I think we get people, you know, that, that come to some of our online sessions, you know, and there's experts chatting and they go and they're like, I'm just starting out or I'm just leaving the military or I'm just leaving <laughs> college. You know, what do I do first? Where do I begin? And I do think there's some advice there, and, and I hope that some of what happens in these sessions is it's almost an opportunity to sit down and get some mentorship from you. You know, so yeah. you you're at a stage where you were looking at opportunities and you were looking at compensation things like that. And so you, how did you, you just randomly pick some certifications to go for? What did you do? What 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 was so that so for me it was you know first kind of look what certifications were out there that were actually um, kind of that I was interested in that was kind of sparking my passions. And then amongst them, I basically looked where the opportunities were and focused on the ones that were in the subset that I wanted to do, but the ones that actually gave me the best path forward for what opportunities I could see available at the time. And that's how I got into cybersecurity. Oh, so that, that that's one of my questions that I like to get to. Yeah. That's where cybersecurity inter inter intersects with your, your path. 
It was, yeah. My first full-time job was, which was actually while I was in high school, kind of between high school and, and college uh, time periods, I got some work released my senior year and I was working full-time for a, an engineering firm. And that's actually, that was actually my introduction to, um, you know, PLCs and controllers in the industrial world. Uh, I was building control cabinetries for water treatment facilities. But that was, that was kind of my, my first full-time job. Right. But but then after that, when I when I went through college and, and finished up my college and, and started teaching for this training company, we ended up having kind of gaps where in, people would want to take classes and we didn't have an instructor to do it. And so I jumped up to, to, to fill that gap. And the first thing was uh, Cisco training where we had a gap because we had a lot of instructors, but the Quest contract was actually really driving uh, a lot of work and we were always short instructors there. So I, I focused on that because I was interested in networking at the time because I'd done a lot of building and building my own networks and building my own computers. And then the other gap that I saw is we had some level of interest for Linux operating system. We had nobody in the company that did that. And I'd kind of dabbled with it a little bit in, in college. And so I jumped in there and got my Cisco certifications and that's or not Cisco. Sorry, my my Linux certifications at the time. Yeah, let's debate certifications. It comes up. Yeah. People say, you know, pro con. There's these people out there like, oh, certifications. They're they, you know sort of against them and they have issues with unnecessary them. evil. <laughs> yeah, and there's the people like you know go go get as many as you possibly can. And there's people like, well, well, maybe not. You know, and there's stuff in between. They 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 do serve some vital purposes. And we talked a little Correct. bit about that. If somebody doesn't have any and they're going to go get some, and they were sitting in the room with us, what would you say to them? So I would say that the, the best things about certifications, well, let, me, let me talk about it on two different aspects. I still do certifications today. I personally do certifications as a way to set a goal for myself to understand a subject to a certain level, a certain degree. So I will go out and pay for my own certifications purely for myself, because honestly, they don't value they don't benefit me really having them anymore but i'll, I'll do it just to, to say i've gained this level of appreciation it kind of is a way to force myself to to focus to a certain point but i would say that for people starting out in the industry certifications are the best way to gain experience without having to try to get hired by a company because that's the big problem yeah, even 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 if you get a, a university degree, a bachelor's degree, right? You're still sometimes going to struggle on your job opportunities because you know a bachelor's degree shows some level of experience, but if you do bachelor's degree plus certifications, right, that's actually easier to get in that that door to the very first time jobs. Now you can do that to some degree with certifications only and no degree, right? But that's not going to be as advantageous of the degree plus the certifications. Same thing with a degree only, right? I, I think there's a lot of benefits there, and I think you're probably a little better off with the degree only compared to certifications. But honestly, I think the best is is literally having both. Yeah, and nothing keeps students who aren't yet done with a degree from gathering some certifications. I mean, and no, I, I spoke to a university student last night that was a junior in cyber cybersecurity and trying to figure out the path. And he's like, "Hey, I'm trying to get an internship for next year, right? What can I actually do to stand out amongst all my peers?" And it's like, "Well, easy, go get a certification, right?" Wow. And they they weren't ICS related. But um, my recommendation to him was you go out to do CompTIA Security Plus, right? Because it's very inexpensive. It's like 300 bucks out of pocket. You can afford doing it yourself. I think it's a, a good appropriate amount to self-invest. And that in and of itself is actually going to stand you out amongst all your peers. And my recommendation to him was as soon as you finish your degree, focus on getting your SCISSP. Right. It's a horribly expensive certification. It, it kind of sucks for that. It's not the most expensive one that's out there. But it's one that's generally required by almost everybody. So I think that's for a graduate, somebody with a four-year degree, that plus a CISSP is probably the best combination to have. And then, you know, maybe another certification specializing in a, a specific area you want to get into. 
Yeah, and and I think you know before we move on, it it, it seems like the the thing is I I fully agree with everything you said, and the only place where I've seen and certainly heard employers talk about it is people overplaying their card and putting mm -hmm. forward like because I have these certs, I am you know I'm the ultimate, and I love yeah, and that's the wrong way to do it, right? <laughs> I, I love the analogy. I, I think it I don't know I think it was Mike Asante's analogy, but I don't know. But when we were putting the GICSP together, and it was like no, it doesn't mean you're a heart surgeon, but it means you could stand in the OR, yeah. the operating room and not cause any trouble. It means you have some level of experience, right? And that's really what they, they do. Uh, and like I said, if you really want to get a job in the field and you're trying to hire for those positions and you can't get hired to those positions, get a certification in that field. And it's, it's not going to be the magic silver bullet, but it's going yeah. to help you, you know, increase the odds of getting hired. Yeah, yeah. So I know um, a, one, a one word descriptor that I left out of introducing you is entrepreneur. Oh. <laughs> I should have used that. Should have been the first word. That's, that's, oh, that's one of my least favorite words. <laughs> oh, one of my favorite words. Oh, there we go. We're gonna get to favorite words later. You know, I own my own company. Uh, and I run my own company. Been doing it for years. But boy, that for some reason that one term kind of rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. So let's just say business owner. Uh, there you go. Founder. But founder. I mean, the problem is that word means both. I mean, you'd be an owner. I know. You didn't start the company. You bought it from somebody, but you've created. Well, I think it goes back to what you were saying with certifications, right? It's it's not necessarily that certifications are bad, but sometimes we get turned off from them because of person persons that have more narcissistic tendencies that tend yeah. to overplay certifications, which is the same problem we tend to get when people call themselves entrepreneurs. We have yeah. some really amazing people and other people that are a little too narcissistic. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, this is, I think, you start something over twenty years ago. I did. Wow. Uh, so. So it kind of goes back to that job, right? So right after I graduated, I graduated from Brigham Young University back in 2000 with my bachelor's degree. And that's when I started working for New Horizons and I was working for them for about a year before I ended up getting laid off. And that's when Quest came back to approach me to start doing training for them. So I started my own company at that point to be able to, to have a legal way to, to be able to do that, that had some you know liability separation. So, but yeah, so I started my company back then. It was originally called Mias Technology. Um, and everybody asks, where does Mias come from? Because it's my Twitter handle. It literally came from uh, EverQuest, um, the, the good old uh, MMORPG. Uh, and it was random keystrokes for a character that I, a little, a little uh, dwarf thief that I was actually playing. It was literally random keystrokes. And when I needed a name for a company, it's, I wanted something personal, but I didn't want to, to use my own name. So I used Mias instead, and it kind of stuck. Yeah. yeah. Please don't call well, me Mias. Mr. Yeah, well, Ed Scotus. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was, you know, Mias instead of Us, but uh, at, at any rate, I, I'm glad you, you put the uh, you, you dropped uh, EverQuest out there. I, I uh, along my <laughs> entrepreneurial, along my journey, I got to know Brad McQuaid, the, the founder of EverQuest, and he's become a close friend. And the, year, cool. the, the years of the stories of that, and and the fact that people are still playing it. I mean, obviously, yeah. a, a small dedicated, you know, group. Uh, well, my wife and I still play WoW on occasion, but it's because both of us travel and have work that takes us apart, so we play WoW to, yeah. to, to spend time together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. So you you dropped something earlier, uh, mm -hmm. cybersecurity, and you dropped control systems, and I'm all, always yeah. asking guests on the show where those intersect. You know, some people, they were in an IT cyber background, and then suddenly <laughs> somewhere later, it, you know, technology comes in. And you were talking about building a cabinet, you know, with 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 operating gear in it earlier in the conversation. Yeah, no, definitely yeah. true. So it it 
I, so so really my background kind of started back, back always my whole life bouncing back and forth getting into programming in elementary middle school right getting into electronics in high school and doing both electronics in high school through or electronics and computer science in high school doing the same thing inside of college right working in that same time period for that engineering firm to to really get into control systems themselves uh, and it was after that that I I kind of shifted and started focusing on networking and IT technologies and, and focusing on cybersecurity because back in 2000, 2001, that was a huge area where we needed a lot of people and there wasn't a lot of people qualified because there was no programs to, to teach people. So a lot of that was self-learned. And so I focused on cybersecurity on the IT side up until about 2007 timeframe, at which point I that takes me through teaching for university and becoming the security architect for, for JetBlue Airways and managing all the security for JetBlue Airways and redesigning their infrastructure to become PCI compliant and dealing with airport security and baggage handling and security inside of airplanes and all sorts of crazy things. But that kind of led me back in about 2007 to uh, when I started with Guardians and started doing um, security testing and, and uh, security consulting inside of the IT space. And when I started with them in 2007, we ended up having a electric utility actually approach us and said, hey, we know you're not experts inside of, inside of ICS, but we have some brand new um, smart grid and uh, substation management gear that we want you to go ahead and test. And uh, we want you to try to, to, you know, take your expertise and what you do in the IT and figure out how to make it work for these embedded systems with these control protocols. Um, and because of my background, I was the one that was kind of, you know, me and a, a few of us internal to Inguardians was, was thrown onto that project. And that kind of kicked it off for me. And that's kind of been my little niche area ever since 2007 is is literally penetration testing in industrial control systems. And since that time, I've been literally almost 100% focused on it. Yeah, so. I don't know how far back anyone can go and say they're working on cybersecurity specific to control systems, but it's in that era, right? I mean, you can't go back a yeah. lot further than that, can you? you? You can a little bit, right? So I definitely wasn't uh, the earliest inside of that inside of that area, right? Because Mike Asante was actually doing a lot with uh, Idaho National Labs around that same time. Idaho National Labs had some of the, the programs that were there. So there was definitely some things that were predating it. But if you're going back and looking at DEF CON and Black Hat presentations on cybersecurity, yeah, yeah some of the very first talks ever presented on SCADA right, because that's how they understood ICS, was probably around 2006, 2007 timeframe area. Yeah, yeah, when Mike and I were working together on our first startup in 2000, we never discussed, it was cybersecurity, we never discussed any of this, and it was only, yeah. you know, his, his fork. It was, it was an extra add-on that all of us were doing, right, because we knew it was important, and that's how all of us kind of grew into it, is yeah. that it was something we knew that there was a weakness and a risk here, so we were kind of extending to it, and then I think many of us just ended up focusing on it, so. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when he went to American Electric Power after we sold our first company, and he he went to AEP, um, mm -hmm. and and it was all traditional IT cybersecurity, and then he started getting exposed then to this. Oh wow, there's a whole lot of other stuff here. And that <laughs> was 2002, stuff. 2003. Yeah, so that's right. So you you know you're you're in that group. I've always thought of you in that group of. Yeah, uh, like I said, I was focused really on on IT cyber at that point. I really didn't start mixing cybersecurity with industrial control systems until probably about 2007. But uh, yeah, yeah, fairly early on in the game. And, and then and then like you said, ever since. Uh, that's yeah, no, ever ever since, right? And then and then the education thing kind of goes parallel with that as well. I started teaching about that same time, 2007, 2008. Started teaching classes and presenting teaching classes at Black Hat, presenting at DefCon, presenting at different yeah. conferences. Well as shortly thereafter, I think like. 2009, 2008, 2009 is when I started doing presentations and training for SANS. 
So, yes, which is how I stayed in the door to be able to, to, to do a little bit of training and a little bit of consulting and, and straddle the two. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. There are, sure. there are people out there who might like to teach um, and have never done it. And there are opportunities to become instructors and, and, and to become teachers in a variety of, uh, of organizations Definitely. and institutions. What's your recommendation to somebody who might be listening who is, you know, they have expertise, but they've never been an instructor or they've never, they've never made a presentation at, you know, at, uh, at Black Hat and they'd like yeah. to do that. You know, how does one start to break into those areas? So honestly, the best way to break in is start with one-hour presentations at smaller groups, right? There are so many different types of uh, small cybersecurity groups that are that are in our local communities around the world, right? Uh, just like the one we're presenting for here. But there are plenty of opportunities for people to jump in and actually to share their knowledge, share their expertise. And every single one of these groups, they are dying to get people to 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 present. Right. I ran a group here called Utah Second Utah, where we took all nine of our local cybersecurity groups, both ICS, IT and everything, anything related to cybersecurity, really kind of pulled all these little subgroups together underneath one umbrella called Utah Sec that I was running. And I ran that thing for six or seven years, eight years. And during that time period, right, we were always looking for presentations. I, I think I ended up presenting for there was like two years that I think I, pre I presented like at least 50 percent of the time. Um, just because nobody else would step up to the plate and I was insistent I wanted to have at least a, a meeting once a month, right? Yeah. So necessity yeah. is of inventions, I think is what they say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean yeah. honestly that's the way to that's the that, that's the way to number one, not only to start down that path, but also figure out if it's right for you because um, instructing and teaching is very, very involved. I think of anything that I do, it's probably the most draining because not only am I, I taxing my mind trying to remember everything and put it together and trying to figure out are my students understanding and answering their questions and trying to work around and break down subjects in different ways, but at the same time, right, having the energy to be able to, to do that and impart that energy to the class and to keep the class actually moving and being yeah. on your feet and helping students. I mean, I, I am so dead at the end of a class, right? You'll you usually see that I'm around and I'll stick around as long as anybody has questions. But as soon as nobody has questions, I'm hiding in my room. So yeah, yeah. yeah you, you in fact, when we were setting up this session, one of the possibilities was doing it after you done a day of instruction, uh, like two after you've done two or three days of instruction midweek, and I'm like. I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like in a pitch, I will do that. But otherwise, I, I try very hard not to schedule anything on the days that I'm teaching. But it is a maximum energy output. I, you know, it is. It's, it's rough, especially for six days straight in a row like I do for Sans yeah. and, and yeah. four days for Black Hat. Yeah, it's a lot. And, and you're part entertainer, too. I mean, it's about energy and um, yeah. not just the knowledge. It, it's all of that. So that's true. Anybody that's listening, it's like, uh, if you, you look in the mirror and you're all alone, you're like, I know a lot, but I really don't like to talk to people, <laughs> or I'm an introvert, it could be a tough transition. But if you like to talk yeah. to people and you like to teach, I like your recommendation. Um, it, it's certainly the way I began professional speaking years ago. Grab something free, you know, do lots of free ones. I spoke to universities and to student groups for a decade, uh, you yeah. know, before anybody paid me to speak. I would spoke anywhere I could free for free. And so I think that is, that's the right step, right? It's a stepping stone process. No, definitely true. And I think even if you're an introvert as well, right? So, and that's a, one thing I will throw out there really fast is if you look at most of the instructors uh, that are teaching at SANS, most of the instructors that are teaching at Black Hat, right? Many of which I call friends, most of us, the vast majority of us are actually true introverts at heart. So even if you're an introvert, right, you can still do it. Just realize that it costs you more energy to be able to do that. But the reason yeah. why we do that as introverts is because we like to share that passion, right? It's really about that sharing and being able to be in a subject that we really like. It's not about being in front of people. Right? And, and But some people, that's, that is that is for for some people. Yeah. Right? So I would say that usually when you look at instructors, you have some that are more, more educators and some that are more 
entertainers, right? Yeah. And I think Sans is a good example of that because Sans has a great oh. combination of both, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I would say I'm, I'm definitely more on the education side. I don't tell many stories, right? But I, I am very animated when I get into subjects that I enjoy, so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great, great advice. I think there's people definitely, I know there's people out there interested in, in breaking into that. Let's talk about community and collaboration and teams. You you are part of, have joined and been part of some, some I don't know what you can call them, consortiums, groups of people together mm -hmm. um, that have been around for a while. Um, and so talk about the collaboration and teamwork and people with different disciplines working together to, you know, meet customer needs and things like that. Consulting companies, um, you know, I don't know how you'd, how some of these are actually, would, you would describe them, but some of them have multiple member owners or people that are participating that have some yeah. sort of ownership in it. No, I, I think there. I think there's. I think there's great value to to a lot of these different groups that are that are out there. But I will warn you as well by participating in them, especially if it's like a standards group that's coming up with some type of a formal standard or recommendation, uh, formal document, right? I, I I will warn you that being a part of those groups is a two-edged sword, where it feels like you are giving back to the community, you're actually making something good that everybody can standardize on. But quite often, that's also been some of the more difficult things I've done in my career because you end up having to deal with not just technical facts. You end up having to deal with bureaucracy and politics, people getting their own little uh, pet concerns built into things. And you also end up with different people with different levels of experience. Unfortunately, I think a lot of our guidance documents do tend to have a little bit more people with policy backgrounds and less with hands-on backgrounds. So sure. I think sometimes our recommendations and documents that come out tend to be a little bit less tied to reality because of that lack of hands-on experience. Sure. Well, you just touched on something that's important then too. When you start to join any, any collaborative effort, there's going to be some, um, you know, the word politics is one that was navigation of relationships. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Go into it eyes wide open that that's going to be, that's going to be part of it. But And it's fun. It's fun, but it's rough too, right? It, it all depends on the group. I've been, I've been part of really, really great groups of collaboration are the ones that have been very, very frustrating. So yeah. Yeah, and and that this does come up, but there's there's there. You said something about various levels of experience. There is opportunity to join some of these groups, having less experience, and be part of the way you gain experience, right? To be contributing, yeah. uh, and building relationships with people you're going to bump into, no doubt, in other you know other places if you stay in the industry. So that's something someone can do too at whatever stage they're at in their career. Correct. In fact, it, all these groups they really need people reviewing the documents, right? So yeah. if you look at ISA 99 that has I think over a thousand members now, right? Yeah. Uh, always looking for for reviewers. I'm technically part of that group, but I have to be very very honest that I've contributed almost nothing to that group. But you know other groups that I've been members of and and part of in the past that I have contributed a lot more. You know, like I said, it's it's there, there's a lot of pros and cons everywhere inside of there. But, but people reviewing documents, I think is the best. And honestly, I think any, any type of, of certification standard or, or guidance document, uh, if I go back and look at my favorite guidance documents and some of my least favorite guidance documents, I can usually say that the ones I prefer the most are the ones that have been created by a core team of experts that have hands-on experience, technical experience with these components that are then reviewed by an extremely large review body. Um, yeah. And I think they tend to be better standards than ones that are generally created by groups of 50 to 60 people all co-writing the the documents that are there and then being reviewed by a large people it just there tends to be a lot more to find the the most politically correct word let's use the word fluff added to those documents yeah you've just given me some an idea <laughs> uh, i gotta write down that's missed this is right? fluffy <laughs> i did not write the word fluffing down but fluffy down but i was thinking <laughs> 
uh, but that's what these, you know, I'm getting ideas already from listening to you. So this is, this is good. Um, let's talk about mentorship and, and have sure. you been a mentor? Have you been a mentee? Has it played a role in your career path? I really haven't been a mentee. I, I don't really have mentors, um, but definitely a lot of people I respect in the industry and definitely people that when I have questions, I will go to individuals that are experts in that area to ask specific questions. But as a more mentor for my career, my profession, not not really. I think my personality is a little different than, than that um, and just maybe more my path where there hasn't really been mentors available for what I've been doing. Right. Yeah. I, I think that becomes a little bit less as in mentoring other people. Uh, I definitely am always a, a fan of, of mentoring, helping other people. I would say that I'm a little bit mm, less of a formal mentorship that I usually offer to people and more of a, if you ever have any questions, reach out yeah. and, and ask. And I'm more than happy to, to answer them. And in fact, even if you want to do a quick call with me, I usually don't mind, you know, a quick 15, 20 minute call to, to do any questions right, that you might actually have. And, and I do that literally on a weekly basis. There's at least two or three emails or some type of a messaging LinkedIn, some other medium where somebody asks me a question, I'm, I'm providing feedback to them. Yeah, well, that is, I, I knew that about you. And I was going to say that formal mentorship, you know, we meet once a month, that's one thing. And that's not most people. But no. Mm -mm. giving advice, this community is great for it. And you're certainly one of the uh, best examples of it, of like, oh, sure. Yeah, and I'm a fan of that. I, I, I think that's something that's that's always valuable. And I, I definitely do put aside work that I should be doing uh, yeah. too, too frequently to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I enjoy I, it. I, I do that with, uh, you know, with, with entrepreneurs. You know, I've been starting yeah, businesses. Yeah. I can't help but want to help, uh, <laughs> uh, but sometimes like, like, oh man, a lot of coffees and uh, and drinks at five o'clock could be consumed by just helping entrepreneurs. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, see, and adding good. drinks is a whole new level, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. Uh, okay, so let's talk about um, well, one thing I like to ask somewhere along or around now in these sessions is if you were sitting down, you know, sort of with uh, with Justin at the very beginning, what advice would you give him based on your experience and, and everything, uh, this path you've been on of, of a couple of decades now? Anything you would tell the younger Justin? Uh, yeah, to be successful career-wise, profession-wise. Or happy. Doesn't have to be or happy. To be defined in different ways. It's <laughs> what I have talked about. It's different, it's different things Good point. in life. Good point. Good point. I would I would definitely say that right the the careers you take and the jobs you take and how well you perform at those jobs right I think definitely are important to progress you forward in your to you know to basically climb the ladder get to the points that you actually want to get to inside of your career but I, I think honestly I think it almost matters more not saying the other stuff's not important at all because that's in, incredibly important how you perform your jobs and the jobs you actually have but in order to maximize how many steps you can take each time you change job positions or each time you go to a new company, I would personally recommend that it matters more on what you're doing after hours, right? In staying passionate about your subject area, learning more information, getting certifications, whatever the case may be, but it's, it's what you do after your job is actually done, which is going to play the biggest benefit in your career path. Because if I go look back in my whole career and all the jobs that I've, I've had, right? In almost every single exception, it was because of what I was doing after hours in certifications or personal study, personal research that, that made me that I was ready and qualified to be able to take that next step. And in almost every single case, I probably would not have been able to take that step if I wasn't doing all the stuff I was doing after hours on my own personal thing. And I think that's a good way to keep your passion alive as well, because no matter what you're doing on a daily basis for your job, you will burn out. No matter how much that is your hobby and passion, you will burn out. Right. So so stay in the field. Right. But focus on the things that are are your passion. Right. That you can focus on after hours. Right. So you can still progress. But, you know, focus on the things that you don't get to focus on at work. 
So that, that would be my personal recommendation. And then to counterbalance that with just being happiness in, in life, I would say make sure that those extra hours you put in after after your workday don't take away from your family and don't take away from uh, hobbies and interests that are not related to your, your career and your profession. Anyway, hobbies and interests. Still <laughs> I have a few of those. Uh, in fact, that's probably one of my biggest problems. <laughs> I said we'd get back to that. Uh, yeah, we are now getting back to that. You, you, you get, nice segue. <laughs> So I am still a student pilot, so I'm, I'm, I still don't have my full-fledged license yet. Uh, I got all the way through to do all my solos except for my last uh, cross-country solo. And that's right when, in July, when uh, the pandemic kind of started loosening up enough where I could start traveling again. And my travel schedule has been a little bit insane the last six months. And so it, it's, it's taken me away from trying to finish that up. But my wife is a commercial helicopter pilot, which is part of the reason why I ended up doing it. And, and uh, anyway, I'm trying to be a better co-pilot for my wife. So yeah. yeah. And that's just awesome. I mean, on, on, on yeah. many levels, that's, that's, uh, super well, it, cool. it's, it's something that my wife and Abel share is that we have a passion for hobbies and our hobby list is, is infinitely long and it doesn't matter whatever we put down one hobby, we have at least three more ready to take its place. And so, yeah. uh, for my wife and I, our conversations are usually about what hobbies do we want to put down so we can pursue the next interest that we have. Yeah. <laughs> how many hours uh, of competency, how many hour, flight hours is somebody like competent? You know, they like safe. So generally for fixed wing, you're looking at 40 to 50 hours to get your certification. Helicopter, usually about 10 to 20 more hours than that. Um, mostly because I think there, I, I did a couple fixed wings lessons. My wife ended up doing doing both programs and, and talking to people that have both. Generally the rule, generally people will actually say that, that you know, there definitely is about 80% of the knowledge you have to know for both either helicopter or fixed wing because it's basically just a pilot's license with an endorsement in fixed wing or helicopter, right? But the actual handling of a helicopter is a lot more challenging just to even be able to hover, right? You can't even get to the point where you're comfortable hovering and I should say your instructor is comfortable with you hovering uh, until probably about maybe 10 hours in. And even then, I'm telling you right now, you are still not comfortable with it. Um, yeah. You know, even I think I'm I think I'm sitting at like 50 hours right now and I still get nervous just setting the helicopter down, which is probably one of the hardest things to, to do is just actually literally touch down and land. So, well, the summer uh, that I was either 19 or 20 and a, and a midshipman, they, that summer they, they send you on this sort of sampler um, summer session where you do a week of different things you might do in the Navy. And I, I got mm -hmm. attached to a helicopter squadron for a week and uh, learning everything that, you know, a junior officer would do there. And. The pilot took me up and one of them and he, you know, he said, okay, take the stick and the collective. You know, we'd already gone through some basic stuff. And I look back on that and and I realized his his knees were very uh they were boundarying the stick big time. And yeah. he's like, yeah, go ahead and fly the helicopter. But I look back now and realize how, how controlled he must have been. Yeah, that. well, once you once you're up and flying around in the helicopter, as long as you have at least as long as you have at least a, a moderate amount of forward momentum, so say 40 knots right? Moving forward. So about 50 miles per hour, 45, 50 miles per hour. Uh, as long as you have that, helicopters are trivial to fly, just like an airplane, right? Easy, easy to do. The, the problem is, is when you're getting into those hover modes, right? That's where a lot of the danger occurs. And, and like I said, the, the most dangerous is literally that final set down, right? Coming in for a landing and back down into hover is something that, you know, within 20 hours, you get pretty good at coming in and, and doing your, your landing approach and actually coming into a hover. That's fairly easy. You can get kind of comfortable with around 20, 25 hours, but it, it's it's that final set down, which is just always nerve wracking because you have two skids. And so basically there's there's four points, two on the front, two on the back, and they never all hit the same time, right? 
And so you're actually constantly trying to balance that. And if you get it off, you start bouncing around and then you can actually, if you overcorrect, it makes it worse. And it's, it's actually a really, really dangerous time to, 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 to lose control or to overcorrect. So. Well, Justin, uh, send me an email when you're at 75 hours or more. I'm excited (laughs) to fly with you. Uh, What, what are you excited about in the future? If you, if you look back at our industry and and, uh, your, you, you know, your focus area, uh, and obviously, um, you know, uh, CSA's focus area, you know, control system, cybersecurity. What what excites you about the future? Honestly, it's, it's a lot of the little things. I, I really get excited about having small little tools that allow me to investigate and learn more and to get into some of the communications protocol, to be able to get into some of the devices that are there. Really trying to provide more information and get more ways to analyze security risks and to test for security flaws in systems. Uh, that's really where I think where my primary passion is inside of ICS. So because too many of the tools we use today are, are literally things we're borrowing from engineers or simply don't exist. And we are doing our risk analysis based on what's written on paper. Uh, as we all know, in the IT world, what's written on paper is not necessarily what's implemented in our inner devices. And it's sort of tied to this vision, looking at looking in the future. There are I, we get the question also typically we'll entering the workforce if, you know, if if they want to be highly valuable in the future. They might hitch their trail, their their train to to, to artificial intelligence or crypt, you know crypto mm-hmm. uh, based things. You know uh, blockchain. You know it, what if you were vision casting and said, yeah, if you want to become really valuable, this is an area. Honestly, just anything in cybersecurity for ICS, I think it's highly valuable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we are so missing people inside of this field yeah. that honestly, you can choose any sub focus inside of that area and do it extremely, extremely well. And to use your word earlier, then do it when you're passionate. That'll that'll help you. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. There is a lot. Is there any exciting technology you think that will be a change agent? Oh, that's such a broad broad question without having my mind already inside of a specific area of thought. Nothing that comes off my mind, but I'm sure that if we were talking about a specific subject, I would would be able to to, to rattle some off for you. Yeah. But yeah, in general, I, I, I really don't know. I think that we are doing we are doing better. We're maturing as an organization that we're actually, you know, starting to actually build some good security into our products, right? Having some good things, security products that are actually, you know, doing positive inside of the, the space for our different devices. And those companies are maturing and their products are maturing. And I think yeah. we're having our companies investing more in our staff and our teams for ICS and you know, not trying to force ICS to to be an extension of IT, but at the same time, realizing that engineers can't go and do everything themselves for cybersecurity and that we need dedicated ICS resources for cybersecurity inside of OT. So, yeah, I think yeah. those are probably some of those organizational changes, honestly, I think are making the biggest impact. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I'm right there with you. And and it's part of, I think, our, you know, our mission at CSA is to help support that, you know, the, that that hybrid hybrid people <laughs> they, they can pull from different places or hybrid teams you know as the yeah. case may be but itot convergence not assimilation right yeah so yeah, yeah, no board, no board here. but there's there, there's knowledge to be had i like the way you know you, you said you know it's like you don't have all the answers over here if, if you pick any constituents yeah. that you don't have all the answers there's some stuff that you well, can and, yeah and engineers engineers need to be designing their products and optimizing their products and and making them work at the best way they possibly can their job shouldn't be cybersecurity. Right. We need to have dedicated cybersecurity professionals that are doing that inside of the OT space. Yeah. Um, and, they may be and they're working their daily basis. Yeah. They may be former engineers. They may really yeah. understand operating technology, but you're right. They, they Yeah. Or people uh, came from the IT that's trained for that with some level of training that are working with engineers on a daily basis to learn, you know, yeah. how that area is, which honestly, I think is probably 90 percent of the people we have doing cybersecurity 
in ICS is people coming from IT backgrounds. But I think the most important thing is the dedicated resource working it in a daily basis. So you're learning the nuances and the constraints of these systems. Yeah, 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 for sure. Justin Searle, it was great having you on the show. Sure. I've enjoyed uh, learning even a few more things about you that I didn't uh, <laughs> that I didn't know. And I'm going to keep a, I'm going to email you once a month and say how many hours you have. And once you get to 75, I definitely report <laughs> So it, it's uh, honestly, it's it's been great. Uh, and we get now to my favorite part of the show, which is I end with what's called the Pivot Questionnaire. So I I watched inside the Actors Studio for years and loved it. And the, the host, uh, James Lipton, who's now passed, would end the show with these famous actors and actresses uh, with the same questionnaire that he borrowed from a French show, uh, hence the name of it, uh, years before that. So it's got there's a heritage of borrowing this questionnaire. So if you're ready for it, I'm going to ask you the Pivot questionnaire. Uh, yes, and this is my second time. You uh, you definitely uh, have have spawned this upon me before. Well, yeah, it's funny you should say that. You you the first time <laughs> I ever used this in this community, you know, I liked the show and I was watching it. Is is also one of the very first, you know, I don't know, not the first, but one of the very first events that CSA ever had, and it was in Orlando. It was after yep. a Sands Day. You and I were in a room, and I don't know, 20, 30 people came to spend uh, the evening where I interviewed you, and we did yep. end with this. So that was the very first time I ever did it, and that's got to be seven years ago, probably. <laughs> probably was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, what is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word. Infinite, probably. Having to do with knowledge. So... What is your least favorite word? Favorite, by far. I don't like favorites. <laughs> this question is going to be right up your alley. Uh, <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? A problem to research, right? Honestly, probably is the thing that gets me most motivated, right? Something that I have a problem that I'm trying to solve and, and I have to go take some time to go learn something. I, I really enjoy doing that as long as the problem's not holding me back from things I have to get done. But yeah, learning, I, that's my passion. What turns you off? What turns me off? Probably conflation of opinion slash belief with facts. That probably turns me off the most. Something that it's when people just can't understand the difference. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. Versatile. It's the favorite word, I think. I'm going to go back and do a study of all of these interviews. Like, okay, 90% of people share. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Ah, uh, noise that a noise that I love. What is a noise that I love? Oh boy, there's so many of them. Like I said, I hate the word favorite. Boy, uh, give you a couple really fast. So we have two owls right now. I love when we actually approach them, how they're little, little Twitter and, and kind of talk to us, right? Our cat, how they talk to us, right? So animals of how they interact with humans. I, I really enjoy that. Uh, my motorcycle, boy, just anything. Probably probably sounds that actually have to do with hobbies that I'm actually pursuing at the time. Yeah. So that's probably what it is. Whirring, some whirring blades in there somewhere. It is. No, and that that's definitely part of it as well, right? Bubbles, right, from scuba. Uh, yeah, any, anything like that, that, that brings me back to, uh, you know, to passions and, yeah. and good experiences in the past. What sound or noise do you hate? Oh, easy. When you have a brand new baby bird that you are training in falconry and if you, if you raise them from, from a chick, right? So you, you get it from a breeder or, or get a permission to, to remove it from the wild in a nest, which would have to be a whole nother conversation. But if you end up raising a baby from a bird and you imprint it, right? which in birds of prey are very different than imprinting mammals, right? It's very easy to break that imprinting. But uh, if you imprint in the point that they think that you're their parent, they will actually do a hunger cry to you. And that is the most annoying, 
horrible sound that you'll ever hear. And depending on the species that you're working with, right, sometimes it'll end up lasting for the first year of that that bird. If you end up doing your training wrong, or if you just get unlucky and have a, a bad personality, or just a combination of things, it's it's a horrible, horrible sound, and it doesn't end. It goes on forever. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Linguistics. So I was actually a double major in college with uh, linguistics as my second major and a uh, minor of, of uh, Spanish and a minor of Chinese. It was by far my favorite thing I was doing in college. I actually preferred that over what I, you know, all the, the computer stuff and the electronic stuff. And I ended up giving it up because I didn't see that that was as good of a, a financially, a, 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 as, as good a financial investment for my, my, my career. Uh, yeah. But I, I still love I still love linguistics. I still love the study of languages. It's just something that I'm really passionate about and, and really wish I had more time to to devote. What profession would you like to not do? <laughs> Politics. <laughs> right there with you on that, buddy. Um, oh, yes. Heaven exists. What would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <sighs> Boy. <laughs> Well, as an atheist, I uh, would definitely have to, to to say that would be the worst case scenario. But no, uh, once again, I, I, I don't believe in God, but it doesn't mean that I'm sure that there's no God, right? So uh, I'm an agnostic atheist, which I think most anybody that says they're non-religious, I think that's probably the best bucket to throw them in. But yeah, I would say uh, <laughs> the worst thing to hear. Is that what the question is? No, or no. the best thing? What would you like to hear, God? Oh, saying? okay. So what would I what, what would I like to hear? Yeah. Uh, welcome in. <laughs> I didn't expect to see you here, Justin, but welcome in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, Justin Searle, father, researcher, security practitioner, open source advocate, teacher, instructor, uh, extraordinaire. I, I, I've been in some of your classes. I've seen you at work there. Author, scuba diver, falconer, pilot. <laughs> you know, the list goes on. Uh, we didn't even get to some of the things that you, I know, uh, also, I, I had some memories of things we've talked about. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he does that, too. I love that about you. You you are uh, a man too of many, many hobbies many talents and many hobbies and many interests and you're passionate about all of them and that is uh the stuff of life right there so thank you for coming on the show and thank no you problem. for doing what you do uh, uh professionally uh, our society you know needs it so thank you for that too not a problem thanks for having me on board all right take care and be well bye Justin. you too